how about I now open in a word of prayer for our message today. God, I just thank you for this beautiful time that we've had together. I thank you for your presence in our midst, Lord. I thank you that you are bringing new things to life and new life emerges, whether that be through um, our baptisms or through Thanksgiving, Lord God, for the things that you are doing in our life. You are doing a new thing and we thank you and praise you and we ask that you continue to reveal that to us, Lord God. God, we just pray that this morning as we come to your word, that we would be aware of your presence, that we would be in our hearts drawing near to you, that you would be softening our hearts to hear what it is you would have to say to us today. I ask that we'd be attentive to your presence, that it may be apparent and tangible to us in this crucial conversation that we all have. And God, I ask um, that our conversation today, that it would always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may declare your goodness and give praise to you and glory to you, our Lord and our Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, we are beginning or we're beginning our final week of our sermon series called Our Crucial Conversations. And if you're joining us online for the first time or if been, you've been with us for a little while through this series, that's wonderful. There are ways that you can go back and catch up on some of these um, messages if you would like to be able to do that. But it's great to have you all here. Um, our, our, our topic for today is called Life. When does it start and how should it end? Life. When does it start and how should it end? And I've been really, um, I've benefited greatly from a couple of resources. Uh, one is a book uh, written by a professor of neonatal paediatrics. He's written a book called Matters of Life and Death, and his name is John White. I can commend that book to you. And I've also been uh, really benefited from a, a synod resource. The Queensland Synod has brought out a resource called Remaining, and, Remaining in Lament and Hope. Both those books have really helped me to prepare and to, um, with the team, with the preaching team, together bring something for you today around this conversation, life, when does it start and how should it end? Um, as you would have heard us say already, our crucial conversations is when we seek to bring together the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. And that this series or this particular topic today, it's not by any means the last word, it's not the first word even. It's actually how we might um, walk further together on a range of topics, this topic in particular today, um, because it rises, these topics rise to the surface in our cultural moment. These are topics that are, are real and prevalent in our society. And I'll be talking today, when, I t when we refer to life, when does it start and how should it end, I'll be talking about the complex and even painful dilemmas of abortion and voluntary assisted dying. As I mentioned, there's many people in the room here today. There's many people even with us online. And you might be new to faith, and that's wonderful. You might be here for the first time, and we want to extend a warm welcome to you and just say you're definitely in the right place today. Uh, you might have been a Christian for a long time, and this might be a topic you happen to know a lot about, and I'm very grateful that you're in the room then. But, you know, my conviction... My conviction is that whoever we are today and wherever we, we stand or whatever we think, particularly on this, on this particular subject, um, that my conviction is that having this conversation and having it in the right way is actually really, really important. Having it and having it in the right way. It's not going to be easy, though. I want to just mention that, that we're going to raise and discuss possibly some questions uh, you know, that, that stir us. And I think that you may even go away today thinking, well, what about this? What about this? And what about this? 
But what we're going to really try to do well today is come to these questions, come to these things to think about, come to these issues, and then respond or know how to respond in Christ-like ways. That we may respond with the love and the grace and the compassion of Christ um, in, in response to these, uh, this particular subject. So may I begin with a story. Late in September 2005, uh, my nan's health took a turn for the worst. She was moved from like a, a medium care nursing home situation into some hospice care and a palliative care unit or a palliative care ward. From what I can remember, she was experiencing these occasional mini strokes, but they'd become much more like quite significant and frequent seizures. And they were causing her a lot of um, anxiety, a lot of distress and a lot of pain. Uh, my mum and I would uh, just see this debilitating thing happening to my nan on a regular basis. We would visit her each day and we would see that she was deeply confused, uh, in significant pain and was very afraid about what the future held. Many other family, of course, visited, but for mum and I, for three weeks, three and a half weeks, one of us or both of us would um, visit nan and spend the day with her and as far as we could into the evening and just be together in that time. Georgia, who is my youngest child, and she's currently now in year 11, but she was then only a few months old. And so she would come with me to the hospital each time we came to visit Nan. And despite all the memories of um, blipping technology and fluorescent lighting and that sort of slightly unpleasant smell of cleaning products, um, what was really special was that we had these amazing times, the three of us with Nan. Four generations, actually, but the three of us with Nan would spend time with her in her last and dying days. And they were really hard times. They were hard because the nursing staff had to think very creatively in how they would attend to every area of my Nan's distress, every area of her pain, every part of her emotional and mental state as she approached the end of her life. And when she did pass away, when she did die, it wasn't exactly peaceful. She was heavily medicated to help assist her um, with the pain and the distress. But as I said, there we were, the three of us with Nan, holding her hands, being around her, um, sitting there with even little Georgia propped up in the corner of the bed. It could raise an interesting question for you as to how you would like to die. I don't know whether we talk about this very much. I've not even thought that much about it myself. Um, but if you are, at all know your country in Western music, the iconic Kenny Rogers from his song, The Gambler, says this, the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. Probably be the way that all of us would like to go. But actually, um, from the research that I've done, um, I can tell you that most of us will die in one of two ways, either from a failed cardiac, cardiac pulmonary resuscitation or will actually pass away in an ICU unit surrounded by technology. And as a minister, I've been actually brought to a number of heartbreaking and gut-wrenching occasions to sit by the side of someone in hospital dying or to be, to be introduced or to be invited into the stories of families in their grief and loss. And some of those times have been horrendous. Some of them have been through the most terrible circumstances around things like motor vehicle accidents and even suicide. But when my nan passed away, all those years ago in 2005, I think it was really the first time that I had to stare death in the face. I really had to stare at death and it was deeply personal. But you, like me, you have stories. 
We all do. These things affect and touch all of us. These are realities that affect all of our lives and affects all of those in the wider society. Could I rewind that story, that story just a few months back to April 2005? Because in April 2005, I was 28 weeks pregnant with Georgia. Um, after my regular checkups, I'd gone to see the obstetrician and they had decided I needed to go for an ultrasound because there was just a little bit of an irregularity with, your, with the baby's heartbeat. It was something to investigate and so I had some further scans. And those scans actually led to some difficult news for my husband, Mike, and I. It showed us that there were three areas of concern. There was a heart murmur, there was an echogenic bowel, and the baby was considered to be low birth weight. The echogenic bowel on its own is a soft marker for cystic fibrosis, and all three markers are an indication of Down syndrome. Further tests on my husband and I ruled out cystic fibrosis, but the likelihood of Downs still remained quite high. Receiving that news was a shock. She was our third child. We were kind of thrust into things to think about and places that we needed to go in our minds and in our hearts that we hadn't needed to consider with the previous two children. Things that seemed so far-reaching about what it meant to parent a child who would come into the world with some real challenges. But friends, at 28 weeks of gestation, there was actually no mention or there was no conversation with me about the termination of that child. Concerningly though, one, up to one in three Australian women have a termination in their lifetime. Up to one in three Australian women have a termination. I say up to because our data isn't as precise um, as, as, as what it would be, but we do know this, that there are 80,000 abortions performed each year. That's 1,500 each week in Australia. Who are having abortions, maybe you're asking. Primarily, the primary demographic is women aged 20 to 24. And then the second demographic, second largest grouping is women aged in their mid-30s to mid-40s. And then it is girls in their teens. This subject, abortion, affects so many people, not just women. This subject affects so many people, women and men. Friends, abortions are more common than hernia or varicose veins, and they're more common than any ENT procedure you might have. Yet, it is so suppressed as a discussion we would have in church. It is not talked about. I've been in, in a pastoral-related ministry for nearly 15 years, and I am sad to say that there's not been one occasion that I've had a woman or a man or a couple come to talk to me about this issue. Yet prior to that, it had come up a number of times, but yet in the church we don't seem to be talking about it because I think that there is, it's often spoken about with harshness, with a judgmental spirit, and it's often spoken in that way by well-meaning Christians. If people who are experiencing abortion or have gone through it, if they don't feel as though they can open up and share about how they're feeling, if they don't feel as though they can express with safe people their concerns, their regret, their guilt, whatever it might be, their shame, and if there's just complete silence here in the church, we can't possibly expect for anything to change. So many people are affected, and it's indeed a conversation that we need to be having as the church with tears in our eyes and tenderness in our hearts. 
We must recognise and empathise with the agonising complexity of this issue. We must recognise and empathise with the pain and the full range of emotions that this issue brings up. It is complex. It is complex not least because if these statistics are anything to go by, there are people in this room today who have experienced abortion or who will do in the future, will have to face or ask some questions around this subject. In and around this subject are some really big questions and we're not even going to be able to do more than just scrape the surface. But we have big questions that are biological, ethical, philosophical and theological. They all surround this issue. And we're going to just hone in on two subjects, two questions, sorry, for today. One is the question, when does life begin? And the second question is, when is there a person? When does life begin and when is there a person? In order to answer the first question, when does life begin, this is purely a biological question. Because at the time of conception, there is human DNA and it is alive. So biologically speaking, life has begun at the point of conception and I think you would struggle to find a biological textbook that told you otherwise. When is there a person? Now that's a much bigger question. That's a nuanced question. That's a complex question. That's got philosophical and ethical and theological perspectives to it. It's much more than what we imagine. It has vast, wide-ranging views. We often hear the polarising views. They're often the ones that we hear of most often. And one of those polarising views is a fellow by the name of Peter Singer. He's an Australian-born ethical and political philosopher. And he says that human life, he says, yes, human life begins at conception, but personhood does not. Further, he says this, he says that, that, the, that the worth of a life is dependent on the adequate functioning of the cerebral context, cortex. Sorry. That a human being who does not have a fully functioning cortex, including a fetus, cannot be regarded as having a right to life with the same value as a human being with a fully functioning cortex. This conversation also sometimes goes, um, you know, journeys along an, a line of thinking that says that there is an important choice here. There's an important choice here for women. That women have rights over their own body. That women have rights over their bodily integrity and their body autonomy. That women even have the right to decide economically whether this is a good choice. And this right includes the right to end the life of an unborn child. might just turn the conversation uh, to a different, different part of it. I'd like to show you some images on the screen and I just hope that, you, um, that these images are encouraging for you. They just simply show the six stages of fetal development. And the slide in the top left-hand corner just shows a baby at birth. And then the next slide along, it shows a baby, a fetus at 20 weeks. And then uh, on this side here, you see uh, the fetal development of a 13-week-old baby and then down here we have uh, six weeks, down here we have three weeks, and here to my left we have three days. Those images are of the six stages of uh, the fetal development. And I have a question for you as you look at that image. As we, as you and I, as we trace back our personal history, our personal journey right back into our mother's womb, is there any point 
at which you can look again at that screen and confidently say, that is not me. Let's have a look at the slide again. As you trace back your own personal history into your mother's room, is there any point where you can confidently say, that is not me? It's a great question. It's a great question. And you might think that, gee, you know, three weeks or three days, gosh, maybe that's not me. But I'd just like to suggest for one moment that I actually think God thinks that that's you. God thinks that that's you. And if I could read to you Psalm 139, would you just read along behind me on the slides? Psalm 139, uh, verses 1 to 16 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the psalmist is describing something for us. And I think that there are moments through this psalm where he has this kind of realisation that what, what he's trying to get his head around, he simply can't. That is just Some of this knowledge is wildly beyond him. But I believe that this psalmist is, is communicating to us, is telling us something very important about who we are and who God is as our creator. And that our worth and our value and our dignity is intrinsic because it comes from the God who created us. It comes from the God who knows us, who speaks to us who remembers us, who calls us, and calls us into existence. That we have intrinsic value created in the image of God. And that intrinsic value provides for our life a certain security, a certain kind of support and substance that we can't get anywhere else in the world. Nothing else can offer us that. The psalmist recognises not only can he not get his head around it, but he actually wants to be able to, sub he submits himself to this mystery. He submits himself to not having to know it all, but able to trust with a contentment that he needs no understanding other, to, other than knowing that there is power in the one who made him and he is held in that power. The psalmist also reminds us there is no place in the cosmos where we can evade God's presence, not even if we trace back our life's story back to the mysterious origins of the womb. So the psalmist helps us to reflect on three things, both past, present, and future. Past, he says, you have searched me. In terms of future, the psalmist says, you know when I sit and when I rise up. And in terms of his future, the psalmist says, your hand will guide me. 
your hand will guide me. Just focusing for a moment on uh, verse 13 where it says, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. The word womb in the Hebrew scriptures is quite a significant word. It has both a metaphorical meaning and a literal meaning. Um, the literal meaning of it is, of course, belly or the womb of, of a woman's body. But metaphorically, the word womb is often used and connected to the word compassion. These two words share the same kind of root sound um, or root, root word of, this, of these two Hebrew words. And in biblical thinking, the womb is a very special place. It's a sacred place. It's a place of safety and security and a place of compassion. It's where God's guiding hand is at work, is where his voice is calling a unique being into existence and into relationship with him. It's a place where God is lovingly forming and creating and shaping. Sadly, the most dangerous place for you as an unborn baby, the place where your life is most likely to be extinguished is actually in your mother's womb if those statistics tell us anything that we should be paying attention to. But wonderfully, most wonderfully, Jesus began his own life in a womb. Can you, can you actually appreciate that God, God the creator, turned himself into a fetus? He turned himself into an unborn baby. He was knitted together in the darkness of the womb as you and I were, that we came from those same beginnings. And he entered fully into our human experience and continues to be fully entered into our human experience, fully connected, fully emotionally involved in the joys and also in the agonies of life. The joys and the agonies of life. Friends, as we kind of wrap this subject up a little bit, I just want to mention something that in all of the reading and all of the research I've done, there is this, there's always a chapter about hard cases. You might be able to, you might know what I'm referring to, but it would often refer to situations where women have been raped or abused, where a mother's life is significantly at risk, where there's been a very dangerous type of pregnancy or where there's a significant malformation of the baby. Hard cases always get a chapter, but you know what? I actually want to just say to us as a church that there is no such thing as a hard case because every single one of those situations represents a person or a couple, two people or a family. Every single one of those hard cases is not a hard case or a person. They're a person who, who has probably felt as though they had no other option, who often advised that they had no other option. They're not hard cases, they're real people, and we need to pay attention to that. You know what we also need to do? We need to be very careful that we're not a people who judge. I want you to go home today knowing that our place is never judgment, never, ever judgment. Our place is to never judge people when they've felt as though they had no other option. And from my research and my asking and my exploring, many, many women feel as though they had no other choice. Many feel as though they had no other choice, that there was no other option. Talking with my daughter Hannah, she's another one of our kids, she's 20. Uh, she's studying law and anthropology at Macquarie University at the moment. And uh, her and I were having a discussion about this topic and she said to me that when the United States Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs versus Jackson that there is no constitutional right to an abortion, this is in the US, and that overturned the ruling of Roe versus Wade, that abortion became a frenetic conversation at uni with her, with her non-Christian friends. She said, Mum, it was like a wave of fear came over my classmates. 
She said, Mum, she said, I think that abortion to them is not something that they take lightly. But she said, I needed to learn to understand that abortion happens when a series of things go wrong. That, that women feel like they can't raise a child on their own. That they don't feel as though there's safe people or places where they can go to to talk about it, where they can be supported, where they can receive advice other than termination. And that really broke my heart. It really broke my heart that, yes, pregnancy carries enormous burdens and raising a child is very, very hard. But these friends of my daughter's felt as though they had no safe place where they could go to to talk about it or to unpack it or explore where their options might be. They had no place that was safe for them to go other than to go through with with a termination. So I'm wondering to myself, what would it be possible? What would make it possible for one of my daughter's friends to have, an, to have a, a baby through to, through to term? What, what, what would make it possible for them to have an unexpected baby? And for us, you know, how are we going to respond? How do we respond when we encounter someone who shares with us about their situation or about the conflict that they're feeling or about how they're feeling about a decision to keep or to terminate? How do we respond? I'd like to suggest that we would respond like this. We would respond like Christ and we would respond with compassion. That's how we would respond. It's very distressing when Christians declare that something is wrong. It's very distressing. I don't believe it's ever enough to say it is wrong without actually immediately going on to say, and here is the better way. Christianity in the public square has often uh, not had a great reputation about doing this kind of thing, languaging things in this way. It's wrong, it's bad, it's evil, the slaughter, all those things. But actually, it's such an inadequate response. It's such lacking what Christ, would, I believe, would do in those situations. Because unless we, the church, are at the forefront of providing practical support for unplanned pregnancies, unless we are at the front of what it is to assist with all the implications of raising a child, its costs, especially if there's the cost of a significant impairment to that child, unless we, the church, are willing to attend to desperate women in dire straits, unless we are prepared to find ourselves having hard conversations with people from honour-shame cultures or other environments where there are terrible situations that women, men and teenagers find themselves in, unless we are prepared to do that, then our commitment to the sanctity of life, our commitment to our Christian convictions is at great risk of being flaky and suspect. Flaky and suspect. So what could this better way look like? What are some ways that we could respond, practically speaking? Well, and how about imagine this with me. Uh, at New Life, we say that our mission is that we exist to see more people more like Jesus by planting, and, by planting and leading thriving local churches. What if our next church plant? What if we were intentional and made the decision that at the next time we plant a church, we will plant with the intentionality around a, 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 a crisis pregnancy service? that whatever context we were called into, as we discerned where it was that we would plant again, that that would be part of the ministry of new life. Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine what that would be like for us to actually, you know, come intentionally to offer something like that, to offer to support and invest in men and women experiencing unplayed pregnancy? Now, you're probably thinking, whoa, 
probably need a lot to make that happen. And yes, we would. We would actually need to come up with solutions beyond the usual scarcity-driven economics of a situation or a decision like that. We would need like an income stream. We definitely need God, wouldn't we? Like if we were going to do that, we would so need to know that this is where God is, is moving. And I believe that God is encouraging us to consider what it is to offer crisis pregnancy counselling, post-abortion support, practical support for mums and dads and parents so that they can be supported where there's unplanned pregnancy. Would you volunteer? Would you get involved? Would you be trained if you needed to? Because <laughs> I think that as a church... We actually want to be that church that supports well single women, married women, whoever it is, to keep their babies. We want to be serious about celebrating life. We want to be serious about celebrating things like adoption and fostering where that is a fantastic option for a married or single couple. We want to celebrate the birth of an unplanned child to a married or an, un or an unmarried person and we want to celebrate the courage of every woman or couple to bring a child into the world. We want to do that with compassion. We want to be people of compassion who respond with compassion and who realise that our response need, needs a practical part of that response. It's not enough just to say it's wrong. I'm going to ask you to go with me now as we turn our minds to what it is to show compassion and the compassion of Christ at the end of life. On the 1st of January, new legislation in Australia is going to come into play. It's about voluntary assisted dying, and the legislation says that voluntary assisted dying will give people who are suffering and dying who meet eligibility criteria the option of requesting medical assistance to end their lives. By voluntary, we mean that they're able to consent, that's so free of coercion. By assisted, we mean that they are actually able to access a substance in order to end their life legally. And by dying, we mean that the intention is that life would come to an end. You might not have had to think about this one. Or maybe, maybe this is something that's very real and very present for you at the moment. Maybe you're journeying with a loved one who is coming to end of life. Maybe you're, ex you're, you're journeying with a loved one who's experienced extreme pain and distress of end of life. Maybe you work in the healthcare area. Maybe you, you support those who are suffering with cancer or uh, in palliative or end-of-life care. Maybe you believe that's going to have a really, really big impact on the fabric of our society. And that's a conversation, I think, that another one that we really need to have going forward around voluntary assisted dying. Maybe you're like Andrew Denton, who's a well-known Australian producer and presenter and comedian. He's been very vocal because he had to watch a loved one's life end in a very traumatic way. Friends, our Queensland Synod, though, as this legislation comes into being, has given to us as a church a position that they take in light of their hospices and their hospitals and their aged care facilities. And their position is, is that as of January 1, whilst they will be supporting and coming under the legislation, they will not be actually participating in voluntary assisted dying in the places that they oversee. The Synod says this, as a church we believe in the God-given dignity and worth of every human life. We are committed to all that Jesus began to do and teach, that's taken from Acts chapter 1, by working towards a society characterised by love, compassion, justice, inclusion and reconciliation so that all people at every stage of life 
can experience life and life in all its fullness. We seek to witness to God's good gift of creation and the intrinsic worth and dignity of all people in every circumstance, which is grounded in the reality that it is untouched by the circumstances of life or death. The Synod goes on to say that we believe that although end of life can be challenging and distressing, it is a reality that is untouched by the circumstances. Oh, sorry, it, it is also a powerful time of hope and renewal. So a couple of big questions we have to answer ourselves around end of life, like what is the Christian thinking about death? The Synod has, has affirmed for us a statement where it says Christianity is a life-affirming faith. That means that, that all of life, no matter how we live or die, it matters to God and it matters to us and it has worth and it has value. And that actually, ultimately, as Christians, we seek to witness to the good news of God with us in every circumstance. God with us in every circumstance. And that the presence of God in Jesus Christ, made known through the Holy Spirit, is the primary source, is the source of our hope and our power and our strength, that we may be able to say God's grace is sufficient for us and his power is made known in our weakness. What about suffering? I mean, suffering was actually um, a crucial conversation that we had last year. You might like to go back and, and listen to that again. Why do we suffer? Where is God in our suffering? These are profound questions that don't have neat or simple answers. And we remember that Jesus, in his passion narratives, he is deeply aware of the suffering that is ahead of him. And he cries out to God, remove this cup from me. But then his next cry is followed by a commitment to follow the will of God in his life. Again, how do we respond? How do we respond in this situation? How do we respond to these questions? Well, I think again, can I encourage us that we will respond God's way? And God's way is that to witness suffering in another person is a call to us to stand in community. To witness suffering in another person is a call to us to stand in community, a call to be there, a call to be present. Suffering is not a question that needs an answer necessarily or a problem that needs requ uh, requiring a solution. It's a mystery that demands a presence. It's a mystery that demands a presence. Are we able to be that community? Are we able to be that community for people that are experiencing end of life, whether that's untimely end of life or that's end of a long and wonderful life? Regardless, are we able to be that community of people who act in the way that God acts that says, I will be with you? Cecily Saunders is a lady who is considered to be the inventor of palliative care and she says this, you matter because you matter and you matter to the end of your life. What a beautiful statement. You matter because you matter, and you matter to the end of your life. In summary, friends, um, let me go back to where we sort of began. We began by saying Jesus began life like you and I as a fetus. Jesus, came to, Jesus' life came to a tragic and painful end. But the important thing for us as the gospel bears witness to that we are clear about and can read and know in our hearts that there is nothing that we can go through in life that God in the person of Jesus Christ has not actually experienced. And that he is with us in the darkness of the tomb and he is with us at the end of life in the darkness of the tomb. We are fragile jars of clay. 
but we get to say that the light of Christ shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so therefore, friends, we are called to engage in this topic. We are called to engage in life. When does it begin? How should it end? We're called to engage even though it's complex, even though it's painful. We are called to engage with it because Christ himself calls his church to be a place of hope and healing for all in the world. Going back to the story that I opened with, my husband and I, um, I remember when we prayed together um, that night after we'd left the hospital, praying over our unborn baby with that news that, that we were in shock, that, that we hadn't actually had the chance to talk very much together. Um, we were just trying to probably just take it in. But that night in prayer, you know, prayer just came easily. And friends, you know, prayer is such an important part of what we bring and, and sometimes it, it is the first and most important thing that we do do. And, and we prayed together, Lord, you already know this little person so well. You already love this little one so much. Would you help us to love like you and would you give us what we need each and every day to trust you into the future with all of our heart? There is no human situation or action. There's no decision that you've made, past or present. There is no pain or suffering, friends, that is beyond the reach of the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I believe that out of the deepest experiences of despair and hopelessness and pain, even though it might have been from a long time ago, that new life does and can emerge and we bear witness to that. We bear witness. We're people who bear witness to resurrection life. We bore witness to it in the baptismal tank. I'd like you to also go away today remembering not only not to judge, not only that when we say something's wrong that we have to say there's a better way, but also to know this, that humanity is not divided up into guilty and innocent. I'm guilty. We are all guilty but rather the dividing line is forgiven and unforgiven. And Jesus gave his life that we could be forgiven. And that is a gift and it's offered to everybody. It is offered to everybody. Forgiveness is also difficult and sometimes complex. And often it's sometimes difficult and complex because there's a need to forgive oneself. And it's hard. But it's made easier, right? It's made easier because in seeking forgiveness, we actually stand before the one who has outstretched their arms, ready to embrace us. Jesus Christ stands with outstretched arms, ready to embrace us, regardless of what has gone on. Ready to embrace all of the complexity, all of the heartache. Did I make the right choice? Regardless of that, we, friends, are embraced. We are embraced. Forgiveness is offered and assured when we ask. And in Christ, we do, amen, find a new beginning. We find a new beginning in Christ. By God's grace, painful experiences can become transformed miraculously and even sometimes slowly, but redeemed by God's power where we can become even a source of help and healing to others.
wondering if you would stand with me, if you're able to. We prayed at the start that we would be aware of God's presence and so if you'd like to just be in a bit of a reflective moment, close your eyes if that's helpful for you, but I just wanted to ask you this question, where have you been aware of God's presence today? Where do you find yourself right now? Maybe you're aware of the loving embrace of your creator. Maybe you find yourself at the foot of the cross. Maybe you're aware that the banner of God's love is being unfurled over you right now. That he might show you his goodness. Maybe you've heard or understood for the first time that you are created that you're created with love and with a purpose and with meaning and with value and that your existence is wrapped up in your creator and the powerfulness of God and the goodness of God. It's all wrapped up in the story of God. As usual, we are going to have some prayer ministry time here as our service moves into some worship and I'd like you to respond in some way that's going to be meaningful for you and I think that there's a couple of ways we could respond today. Would you just love prayer and someone to stand alongside you as you might be standing along someone who is at the end of life? Would you like to come and receive prayer and support for the forgiveness that you're still seeking or the burdens that you still carry or the weights that still are heavy for you. Maybe it was from a long time ago. It doesn't matter. We just make space and open up this opportunity now for you to come and, and receive, to have someone come alongside you. And I'm actually going to ask right now if they're prayer ministry people, um, our section leaders, our pastors would 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 show themselves so that, that people knew that there was somebody here to pray for them. If you would just come and make yourself known, that would be great. But as we go into this, this, this time of worship, I just really encourage you to come forward if you need some prayer for anything. Maybe you'd like to come forward because you want to be part of a community that commits itself to being a place of hope and healing. Maybe you're ready to say, I want to be that safe place and that safe person that someone who's needing to talk about abortion can come speak to. I know that God's moving amongst us in different ways and I just encourage you to respond, to respond and receive some prayer this morning.